What was the biggest use of a pop song in our lifetime? What's the first thing you think of? I, you know, the, I mean, the, the first one that comes to mind is Goodfellas when they stop Billy Bats to death. Scorsese's number one. Him and Tarantino are the two, yeah. you know, the two of them, their soundtracks, like using using the fucking Sid Vicious version of My Way at the end of that movie was one of the sickest fucking cues of all time. Yeah. What I was expecting and what I would have said was In Your Eyes in Say Anything, Peter Gabriel. Oh, see, I was so allergic to John Hughes and... No, that's not John Hughes. That's Cameron Crowe. But it's John Hughes. It is. It's. It's. Yeah. it's <laughs> it say anything is obviously his John Hughes movie. And and the thing is, is it the reason it opens the conversation up is John Hughes movies launched songs. That was like he he was like very MTV in that way. Don't you forget about me. You know, it was it was offered to Billy Idol. It was offered to fucking Brian Ferry, um, and then it fell to Simple Minds. Don't you forget about me. You know, the idea of a soundtrack working as curation of a movie or of a show, the present tense issue is is Mr. Robot because the whole first series used like huge music and that the CDR thing, the CD-ROMs with him writing on it Laundry Marker, that was the thing that sold the show to me because it was such a true, you know, that was the flavor of like late 90s, early 2000s downloading music and, and writing Laundry Marker on a CDR, right? Yep. And all throughout the first season, there were a lot of big cues like that. I just think it's cheap, I guess is my point. So like, if you have a song, when In Your Eyes was in Say Anything, it was like two years old. So it wasn't established as like this historic romantic pop song. Say Anything helped establish that, right? When Mr. Robot does it, you're and, and Stranger Things and, and all these other new shows now, when they're using these huge songs, it's like that song's bigger than your show. And it's such a it's such a cheap shortcut to getting people to suspend disbelief and think about a show as being substantial because the music in it has like a cultural substance. You know what I mean? That's already interred. It's an excellent point, And it's a good year to talk about this because the year began with David Bowie dying. And I realized very quickly that a lot of shows were going to grab instant emotion and instant credibility by sticking David Bowie tracks on the soundtracks and you know some of this for all i know it was in the works beforehand or whatever but i can think of two very prominent examples one is the americans ended an episode with a montage to under pressure what the painfully fuck? Is, is yeah. anybody on this fucking show have a brain this is the cheesiest idea god how does that not get shot down is like it, it, it was painfully literal especially from a show that's better than that right i'm not saying this show is a piece of shit but i'm like how did that decision get by their their writers meeting yeah and and as a big Bowie fan in general, a lot of people have very intense relationships with that song in particular. Oh, are you kidding me? When, when that when they used that song in uh, Gross Point Blank, when they used Under Pressure just like for a minute, when he's looking at this little baby at the at the high school reunion, I was just like, yeah, chills, you know. And and it's not fair. That's cheap. You're totally yeah. pulling at the heartstrings of something in a way that you haven't earned. You're borrowing. You're borrowing or stealing the music to make that happen when you can't do it on your own. 
Right. Or maybe and, you could have, but you're using a crutch and you're not giving yourself the chance to see if you can kind of walk on both legs. But so what was the other example you were going to mention? Uh, the other one, I think, didn't Stranger Things used Heroes, which is a similar case. You know, I mean, you're using the biggest, most obvious, most oh, uh, heart on sleeve Bowie, you know, non-ironic, non-arch, non-persona based yeah, songs you, that you can. And it's, oh, you know, I'm sure I've heard Life on Mars in there somewhere, too. You know, like the real go for the, you know, go for broke, play into the cheap seats kind of Bowie songs. In England, you make an entire show called Life on Mars. Right, right. Bowie is understood to be a way bigger fucking deal than your little, you know, BBC serial like that's going to run. For like, you know, eight episodes and maybe you'll get a second series. When you look at how American shows now are doing this, I think nobody's calling bullshit on this. They're not getting checked and they need to get checked because it is cheap. And so I have an instructive counterexample, which is Halt and Catch Fire. That's a show that I think started very roughly and I did a big piece on it and spoke with the showrunners and they were very candid about how they wrote it to get a job as staff writers on some other show, hopefully. So they wrote the pilot is just the, you know, an anti-hero thing. The the Lee Pace character, Joe McMillan, is basically Don Draper. And once the show was unexpectedly greenlit as its own thing, its depiction of human behavior and human interactions is as nuanced and as devoid of sort of railroading you into feeling a certain way about each person and each conflict that uh, as really anything on television it's very very good its use of period music because it's set in the 80s uh has gotten sharper and sharper and their david bowie song which everybody gets to do this year was absolute beginners <laughs> which is a devotee's david bowie song and they played it you know in the background of a, of a fancy party which is like the perfect place to play it it doesn't imbue the scene with anything it hasn't already earned like you said yeah um you know it's not they're not playing fame they're not playing fashion they're playing absolute beginners yeah and you I, know they're not getting the scene over with the music the music is a part of the actual i mean the literal scene that these people are a part of you know yeah the silicon valley in its early days situation that's what i would like to see more of you know i think there's examples maybe less less stranger things than mr robot where they have soundtracked things intelligently. Yeah, and I wonder if USA didn't pressure him a bit on the first season to really, you know, I mean, clearly the Pictures of You disintegration episode was a com was a completely enclosed entity, and I just think he was really shooting for the moon, and I think the show at that point couldn't stand up to it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This season, I think two striking examples, Bleach, this like Japanese grindcore blast beat band. Yes, yes. In, in this scene where you're trying to express, you know, sort of insanity and rage, and that right. was a, a wonderful cue. That was cue that was sort of breathtakingly like awesome because the band yep. doesn't have a huge profile and it's totally um, appropriately kind of disconcerting and, and jarring for the scene. The foil to that to me is he ends the whole season on fucking We've Got Tonight. You're <laughs> not allowed to do that because the Wonder Years, the Wonder Years owns that song for all time. The Crash is one of the five best episodes of the Wonder Years of the entire run. The, the episode where Winnie is going to a different school and running with the kids from the older grade and they get in a car crash and, Ke and Paul tells Kevin in the hallway, I'm getting fucking chills right now talking about it. The, you know, that episode ends on this resolution of like, we're not getting back together. Kevin has to get over the, the initial first phase of this relationship if they're going to build a friendship and, and a relationship that endures beyond, you know, the unrealistic infinity of puppy love that's in your head. That, that The permanence of puppy love is the thing that has to get broken. And We've Got Tonight was the end of that 
And I just, I, that's one of the five episodes of Wonder Years. It's like that one, the one where Winnie breaks up with him and he, he goes to talk to his dad in the garage and he starts crying and he can't make it inside. Those are some of the best moments in the history of television. And I, I feel like using that at the end of, of season two, when you reveal that Joey Badass is probably an assassin for the Dark Army and he's been shadowing him the whole time or whatever. I just thought it was like totally fucking misplaced. And I made the joke on Twitter when the lights went out. I was like, oh, here comes the disintegration loops. I fully expected him to start playing William Basinski's <laughs> disintegration loops when they obviously it shows that they've cut the power on Manhattan Island. I was waiting for them to drop the audio and just play the disintegration loops for like seven minutes because it just it's so obviously the language he was looking for there. He made some really cheap-ass decisions in terms of putting characters on the shelf and moving this Lego here this season that I, I just, I didn't buy it. TV shows that risk alienating people really do alienate people, including critics who get very fed up very quickly with shows that they've deemed, you know, a favorite thing is too on the nose. Like, it's too on the nose. Mr. Robot is occupied the television series. It's too on the nose. It's, you know, uh, Mad Men, the symbolism, it's too on the nose. And, and I personally really liked Mr. Robot season two because it was such a wallow in the failure of these characters to achieve their goals, to achieve anything, to make life better for anybody, yeah. both themselves and the world at large. And it just got more morose and darker and odder. I really think the show is pissing in the face of millennials in a major way. It's showing them all to be like morally ambiguous, avaricious, greedy, fucked up, mistrusting, you know, hateful people. This speaks to me though, Chris, because that's, <laughs> that's what I, because <laughs> that's what I like. I mean, I like that in art and it, the generational issue is like kind of irrelevant to me. Like I wrote a piece for the observer about how the subhead or something was Mr. Robot. Why Mr. Robot's failed revolution is exactly what we need. And basically the argument was like, look, look around you right now. You yeah, know, yeah. everything's fucked. The, the two movements, social, actual social protest movements that Esmail based uh, F Society on, you know, Occupy Wall Street and the uprising in Egypt during the Arab Spring, like, were destroyed by the state, you know, right. by, by violently destroyed by agents of the state. And then to the extent that the mask and the hacking element references Anonymous, Anonymous has uh, gone an interesting way oftentimes and, and WikiLeaks and no, public shit's opinion. Not, shit's not working. No, you know? but, and public opinion is really easily swayed after just a year or two out of WikiLeaks being, you know, viewed as like a, tor a torchbearer for just literally justice, like the human notion of justice. WikiLeaks is supposed to be the firebrand. And, and now all of a sudden people are like, Julian Assange is a total fucking scumbag. And why are they releasing this material? Why is this material politically viable? Well, it is, right. but you don't like it because it's politically valuable against the people that you like. Right, all, right. all of a sudden, they're they're dealing with both hands. They're not just dealing against, you know, the shady conservatives that's so easy to think suck. All of a sudden, it's like, yes. everybody sucks. Hello? You know, you don't get and into politics and keep your fucking hands clean. It doesn't happen. Between you and me and the lamppost and the listeners of Shallow Rewards. Not that it's many. Pretty, we can all fit under that lamppost. The correspondence between uh, television critics and film critics who are like very vocally like disgusted by Mr. Robot 
and also very vocally disgusted by Bernie Sanders is like one to one. Like the ratio yeah. <laughs> is it's dead on. The TV critics who like, oh, I don't know, let's say have had family who worked for the first Clinton administration. <laughs> and the TV critics who really dislike <laughs> Mr. Robot, that 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 Venn diagram over that's a, that's one fucking circle. So the the monopoly the monopoly mask was a decent out of you know this is they obviously they couldn't use the Guy Fox mask and actually make it you know about anonymous. So the right. fact that it wasn't there was like oh everybody just accepted it as a kind of a tropey you know goof. You know obviously he's supposed to be wearing Guy Fox mask, but they can't do that, so it's something like it. Well then he turns and takes it and makes it like he said the Rosetta Stone of this entire thing, this slasher movie from the eighties where the monopoly man comes to life and kills rich kids you know and and this is like people don't remember any of the the billionaires boys club nobody remembers the billionaire boys club one of the guys who was running it in order to try and keep it going fucking killed somebody and like to collect uh, his insurance and then you had the menendez brothers you know fucking murdering their parents that's a whole tenor of the time period this is the stuff that he grew up with sam esmel clearly grew up with the same memories that i did which, which is why i look at mr robot and i'm like how would i have done this because I literally think we have the same fucking brain in terms of what we experienced, how we looked at it. And of course, the big knock on Mr. Robot is it's fucking Fight Club. It's the exact same plot. This guy who's crazy and sees somebody is going to blow up all the credit card companies so that there's no more debt. You're fucking kidding me, right? You're kidding me. You're going to call this Mr. Robot and not Fight Club the series just because he doesn't punch <laughs> anybody? Um, but my wife and I had a conversation about this. And we always have this conversation because... In music, we hate when something sounds like something else or rips something else off and we go fucking crazy. You know, when Drake takes Hotline Blig from Dram or DRAM, when when we hear a song that's a total ripoff of, you know, Waiting Room or something, we can't wait to call that shit out. But in movies and TV, people want to see the same fucking thing over and over again. Same story with different characters and updated for a different time. And that's a point my wife has had to make for me. To, to be like, you're, th- of course you're gonna, there's gonna be a hundred zombie shows. World War Z, you know, the video game, Last, the, Last of Us, every zombie show, Walking to everything, it's all the same plot. Super virus comes, wipes out humanity, and it creates drama for four really attractive main characters. And I loved that sitcom parody episode for its technical accuracy. I actually yeah. thought that was one of the coolest episodes this season because when we talked before about the 90s, I said there was a shitload of the 80s. We were still working out of the system in the 90s. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All the sitcoms were exact, made exactly the same way. Three camera sitcoms, laugh track in the 90s. It was just like Growing Pains. It hadn't evolved at all. I mean, I was one of the few people who actually called that a 90s sitcom in my review. Everybody else is like, oh, it's like the 80s. You know, it was sort of a riff on TGIF, which was more of a 90s thing, but the ALF, ALF is from the 80s. Now, all of a sudden, serial TV and binge watching is the thing everyone's excited about. So the whole shape and form of our televised entertainment is changing. Mm-hmm. And he's part of the he's part of that change, that overthrow. And now that we have the mechanism in place, we got the streaming thing that blows up the continuity we've always had. Since the 40s, the 30s, since radio. Show presented by commercial break, words from our sponsor, and scene. That's over. And I think it's fucking rad that he's conscious of this and, and he's doing everything he can. I think people want this show really bad. They want a modern show really bad. And I, I think it is modern. I, I don't think Breaking Bad was modern at all. Breaking Bad could have been made in the 80s if people didn't have such a moral compass about swearing right right but this show um not just in the language but in how absurd the commodore 64 scene what the fuck was that i was in fucking hog heaven like i had friends on twitter who were like the moment angela walked into that room you know they tweeted at me and they were like i was like i can't wait to hear what sean thinks of this like that was 
<laughs> that was so up my aesthetic alley. Oh, totally. I, was, uh, I can't even I can't even describe to you how delighted I was by it. My wife had a Commodore because we, we watch this together. When we get hooked on a show, that's like our time together. I looked at her and I was just like, this is seriously happening right now. He's going to do a fucking <laughs> homage to the Commodore 64 paint and print games. It's really going to happen yeah. right now. We're going to watch this. But the little kid thing ruined it because that's such a bullshit device. It's makeup. It's just makeup. What? Come on. <laughs> oh, why didn't, you, why didn't you try to leave this room? The door, we actually removed the door five times and you didn't look like, what? Come on. Oh, Chris, you're, you're, I, I, I go along for the ride a lot more with things that I like. No, but that's what I, I was saying. You do. That's what I was saying about Sam as like, I've never talked to this guy. You have, you've spent time with him, but I expect everything of him because he's already demonstrated that he clearly gets as much of the history of, of entertainment and culture and pop bullshit. He's a pop kid too. He totally has the same fucking information in his head that I have. So I demand that he do the smartest thing. I can't possibly be ahead of step of him. That's not right. He's failing if I'm a step ahead of him. <laughs> you know, the, the thing that he said to me in that piece that I did on them, he said, the whole goal of it that I kind of workshop talking to Emily Yoshida, who was my editor on it, if this was just a cyber thriller, if this was just about hacking and how cool hacking is and how badass hacking is, I don't think it would have resonated with people the way that it did. I kind of wanted to figure out what really moved him as a writer and as a filmmaker about this story beyond the the stuff that's visible on screen, let's say, you know, the hacking stuff and the, and the, and the fight club split personality thing. What came out of that was he said, you know, I think we're, I'm trying to make a show about what loneliness looks like right now. And he went on for a long time about how tired of he is. He is of shows where people just show up at each other's door all the time <laughs> and, and like, and, you know, and taught and, and make plans that way. Just for example, I mean, but he talked about it. He was very, very passionate about that specifically, you know, and he said he had very bad social anxiety for a long time and was a lot like Elliot wouldn't go out, wouldn't go to parties, like would stand outside and then not come in that feeling of being up at three o'clock in the morning and you've got Twitter open and you, you, you know, you have like pornography in your incognito window or whatever, you know, and you can connect to anyone on the planet and you're having these conversations and you can have these like experiences or whatever, but you still feel completely alone and you're lit by the glow of your laptop. Like they did that very well. And then also just literally like Grace Gummer's FBI character, like she like is sexting with someone and kind of like masturbating joylessly and has insomnia and like talks to her Amazon Alexa thing. I hate that. I hate that character so much. I hate oh. it. I hate <laughs> everything about that character, but I love everything about what she's brought to it and how she's owned it. But the character sure. is fucking Dale Cooper and it's stupid. It's just stupid that he let that get through that. That character is Dale Cooper from twin twin peaks. I don't think it's Dale Cooper. It like, absolutely Dale is. is. It's every, it, you know, it starts off and she's quirky. They totally overdid the quirky bullshit in the intro episode. And then she's like, I mean, yeah, obviously it's not note for note, but I just, it just, I mean, and she's also, you know, she's also Mulder and Scully at the same time. Like I just, that, that I will give you. It's I actually a, feel like she looks like she could be Mulder and Scully's kid. Yeah. And that's, and, and it's just, I just think all the notes around that character are so fucking obvious and. It just bothers me because she, even in the finale, when they have the opportunity, like I thought the scene where he showed her like jerking off in a chat window and whatever was, was like 
I was like, okay, we're going to fuck with this character a bit. This is the rawness the show is sort of expecting, you know, sh- trying to get me to expect it's going to increase and these characters are going to be more disturbing. We have a murderer in this show. It's not a dream. He fucking killed somebody. So this show should be pretty raw and fucked up, right? But then after that, she's like, you know, the, you know, the puffy bunny tail with the, the quirky glasses who spills her coffee. Oh, excuse me. But then underneath, she's a total badass and she's going to find out everything about this and you're, I got your number. And that scene with, um, with Elliot's sister at the end in the interrogation room where they're supposed to have their big, you know, tit for tat. I love the slut shaming line. That was fucking beautiful, but I didn't buy her character at all. Her character's like conviction in the omnipotence of the dark army, her character's desperation that they're onto something and that this is, you know, historic. And I never believe for a second that that character would have uttered those words or thought those thoughts. I don't know. I grew up reading Stephen King and I think there's a lot of things Stephen King does well. But about 10 years ago, I made the mistake of reading the entire Dark Tower series. It, 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 it nearly ruined Stephen King for me forever. And one of the things that I thought was most egregious was in the second volume, there's like a character who gets mixed up with the mafia. And his version of the mafia was like, it was beyond fucking bad. It was just beyond yeah. bad. It's like the Phantom Menace when there's that totally racist store owner. who's <laughs> like, what's the matter you all the time? You know what I mean? Like, it's the, it's definitely that bad. And I mean, I for me, the thing with Stephen King is all those, all those awful. And the only thing is you can say he was completely fucked up and alcoholic drug addict when he wrote him, but... All those all those short stories that were compiled, Rage, that one that inspired all the shootings in the schools mm-hmm. and stuff. People don't even remember this. Like all the school shootings in the eighties, five of them, the kid had the book Rage by Stephen King in his locker, which is literally a book about a kid like killing his teacher and like <laughs> holding his students hostage. Um, it's the script for every school shooting ever, and they, they he took it out of circulation because it was like five for five at one point school shootings and kids having rage in their backpack or in their locker. I just reread it last month and I fucking feel that shit still so much. I read it the first time when I was the age of the kids and I read it this time when I was the age of them as grownups, like yeah, to the year. And like it fucking nailed it because he's oh. been a kid and he's been a 38 year old, but he's never been in the mafia. So <laughs> like it That's was it. like it, it felt like such a failure. And he's been, you know, all his characters are like middle aged male white writers from from Maine. I have no idea what like an FBI agent who's younger than me. I don't know why you'd get into that line of work. I don't know what motivates you, what feelings you have. Like yeah. I just could connect with her in the sense that she is a person a young person who lives in New York and and is lonely. I, I guess my thing is that this, just the wacky FBI agent is one of the worst tropes. I mean, that is that to to walk straight into that is just that's that's either you got fucking giant cantaloupe balls and you think you're gonna you know right bring something new to this, or you're just you're lazy and the people who are putting the show on are not looking out for you and saying you're about to enter a minefield here. And and the other the other aspect of this is his use of um, China as a specter. The you know the whole like magic we go to China episode. I did think the scene with with B. D. Wong and her uh, in front of you know his sister in quotes um, sister's wardrobe. The whole idea of like the the eternal patience and the long view of the Chinese is such a racist trope to me. I really found I'm not bullshitting you. I'm not just like trying to get my back up for effect. 
that whole character's obsession with time, it's like, oh, well, no matter how hard the wind blows, the mountain cannot move. Like, it is such a bad, airy-fairy, racist fortune cookie mentality to assign to a fucking Chinese character. I was appalled that there wasn't more like, what the, where's Constance Wu on this one? Or where's B.D. Wong, who sued over the casting of Miss Saigon, did he not? I just, um, I, I, for all that to go through like that, um... I don't know. I mean, so the the old the old guy, the the bald creepy banker guy, obviously yeah. he fucking carried the sh- the show. He was unbelievable. The yeah, that's a dynamite with, performance. His scenes with Angela were so fucking terrifying. Mm-hmm. That that shit was unbelievable. How good it was. And when he when he gave Tyrell the kiss off, oh man, that was so cold, dude. Yeah, yeah. When he was like, "There is some moment in your past," and I was just like. Motherfucker, you are my god. <laughs> he killed that shit all season. Now, here's another thing we were talking about last night. And I got to let you get back in here. I'm ranting like crazy on this one. <laughs> I was ranting like crazy last night because I felt something weird happen in season two. So I mentioned the whole idea of putting a character on a shelf so you can work out your other characters. They put Tyrell on the shelf for the whole season. When he comes back, it's like a different guy. He can't act anymore. I don't understand what the hell's going on with this character. So I thought he was fake because he was acting different. Like when he was in the taxi with him, it wasn't even like his accent. He was all stilted and weird. Yeah. And I was saying to my wife, I was like, he's not real. He is another, they, they are using another imaginary person device. Like what, where's this going? And then I guess, you know, he was real, but there's still something very off and wrong about Tyrell since he came back. Did he have another show or movie that he was committed to and he left the production? I don't, not that I know of, although I, I just genuinely don't know. You know, the, the impression that I got was that just from the final episode is that he had somehow realized that the woman he murdered was pregnant and like lost his mind. That's a way to look at it. If we're going to talk about acting and actors in this season, uh, Portia Doubleday as Angela I don't know what you thought, but I thought that was some dynamite work. And just in just in terms of the physicality of how she looked, because, you know, she had this very severe, you know, hair pulled back, you know, wearing like suits and stuff. And like, but because she has those gigantic bulbous eyes, like so many of the characters on the show do, <laughs> it was like it was like smog from The Hobbit, you know, like she was like armor plated, but she had this one weak spot. The way they shot her and the way that they used that character was just like physically uh, represented what was going on with her personally. We had talked about the show in the past. You talked about um, how Sam Esmail likes to frame, you know, shots to show that people are alone. Yeah, Um, Yeah. And he went for the fucking moon with that in this season and especially with her and yeah. I, I mean I, I don't know if it was an agreement or or a you know an intention on his part or the actors mutually but he clearly wanted to see how much he could do with expression and her, her character is 100 percent trying to convey all of the thoughts in her character's mind you're supposed to start to get them running through your head as you watch her on the screen and she did it mm-hmm. and it, that's an unbelievable skill because I think Elliot's character is is like a he's so ripe for a a Saturday Night Live skit. He, he's such a go- it's such a goof. He's constantly like like okay the scene when he sits down on the subway in the second to last episode to talk to Angela before he even said it. I turned to my wife and I went I got your messages and he literally said the same line that I had thought <laughs> up and I'm not making this up. I mean I that literally happened. I knew exactly what he was gonna say and it was that same you know vocal fry 
nonstop. I mean, he he jokes about it, you know, when they do the wrap-ups. The, I, I don't watch this crap. I hate the industry of TV content. But that uh, that wrap-up party they do after every episode now, because USA yeah. is just like, put it in fucking sixth gear, guys. It's all going 24-7. We're the Mr. Robot channel. Want to yep. buy, buy Elliot's notebooks? Like, get the fuck out of here. But um, I'm sure he, as an actor, and he's a lot older than we thought he was. Um, he was in The Master. Yeah, he was good in that too. And he yep. was, wasn't he, didn't he have like a famous child role too? Uh, he was a pharaoh in Night of the Museum or some shit. That's it. He was in yep. Night of the Museum. And that, that was a pretty long time ago. So he was probably yeah. in his 20s or something when that aired. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I, sh- when I went to the, when I did a set visit, I've, I had joked about this before, but like the, what he wears is what I wear all the time. Like when it's, <laughs> when it gets cold enough, I wear black shoes, black socks, black jeans, black shirt black hoodie and so that's what i was wearing to the set visit and i met him and he was like hey you're appropriately dressed like he had a sense of humor about himself and about you know yeah um so he's he seems like he has a a pretty uh, appreciative head on his shoulders about what's going on so good yeah no no one no one's david carusoing on this show i don't know he's missing from the scene maybe he took off or maybe he got taken for a ride To me, In Your Eyes is a demarcation point where pop music is getting used to get stuff over, as we said. If it works right, it augments it. If it doesn't work, it makes the movie or the show seem smaller. An example there I would use would be Sofia Coppola's use of The Cure's Plain Song. You know, using Plain Song as the recessional for Marie Antoinette's wedding, I called it uh, pornographically narcissistic. And that's cool because we haven't had a lot of, like, pornographic narcissism in film and i think you know good it's something different right so so her her use of music was extremely narcissistic and it was it made sense because so was the fucking movie is my point when you use music for its value you know to hijack that shit inject it like steroids into your show or your movie I I've, I I really think that's a slippery slope that's dangerous for the entire medium. I don't think that's a melodramatic statement. Because when I look at Stranger Things, right, every music cue in Stranger Things to me feels like the people behind the show, they watched SLC Punk. And that moment at the end of SLC Punk, after the main character's friend has died, I, I think this is one of the most underrated movies, I don't know, in, out of what. It's a completely small, really beautiful indie movie about people in the middle of nowhere where it was impossible to even fake cool. And they have this great scene at the end where he's sitting down with his buddy and he wants to play Dungeons and Dragons and listen to Rush. And his buddy, not him, even though he was the most visually punk and, and extroverted, his introverted, weird buddy is the one who turns to him and plays Kiss Me Deadly by Generation X. And is like, it's new. And that moment was one of the most powerful scenes in terms of coming of age. That I put that on par with Stand By Me, honest to God. A lot of these cues, it, it seems like we've had successful big moments, like In Your Eyes, throughout history, like the use of Kiss Me Deadly and SLC Punk. There's a bunch of other ones. There's probably five cues in Almost Famous that are perfect because that's what it's about, right? Right. But um, we've had movies where... The music is an aspect of the character's personality and their individuality. And then you lock that in with an individual music cue. And it's incredible and it's powerful and it fits and it's wonderful. The Wonder Years does that, you know. And I think Mr. Robot has done it. It's failed to do it, but it has done it. But I thought Stranger Things through and through 
every fucking cue was totally cheap, complete bullshit, and they totally used it to get the whole fucking show over, as far as I'm concerned. It's an aesthetic uh, tour de force, but it's all aesthetics. It's not a TV show. I agree with you in, in a million ways. I mean, I, I the podcast that is probably uploading to iTunes as we record this is uh, from uh, is my Song of Ice and Fire podcast. We did a whole episode about Stranger Things, and I wrote an essay for it in Vulture, and I said, you know, just it, it is less than the sum of its parts. You know, I mean, you can rattle off the things that influenced that show uh, in terms of filmmakers, comics, D&D. Y- you know, just off the top of your head, it's so easy, and it doesn't do anything nearly as interesting as any of it. Even stuff that I think is actually kind of shoddily made, like the first Nightmare on Elm Street, where he almost like kind of lucked into resonant, haunting, nightmarish images by accident. Like, that dude is not an accomplished filmmaker if you compare it to, like... Wes Craven? Ver- yeah, like very directly comparable things like the first Hellraiser or Poltergeist. Like it's shitty. Anything that's not a Freddy attack yeah, but, is but, but really dude, shitty. But the Freddy attacks are so great. But Poltergeist is Steven Spielberg, dude. Or is it? Is it, it Toby Hooper? No, it's Steven Spielberg. <laughs> but that's my point. Good. We might as well. We should hold Wes Craven to Steven Spielberg standards. The dude's fucking better. I never was thrilled with Stranger Things, but I enjoyed myself. It wasn't until the final episode where I started to get really mad because (laughs) it started to do things that were so directly swiped from better material Uh, that I couldn't stand it anymore. And it was, and and two of them were filmic. Uh, One was, you know, they were just basically ripping off Ripley, saving Newt from uh, the alien hive and aliens. They were, completely ripping off under the skin in a way that I think is really unforgivable because while everybody has seen Poltergeist and Nightmare on Elm Street and Alien and E.T. and all this other shit, like only art house weirdos have seen Stranger uh, under the skin. So they're basically stealing it. There's, they just, it has no tonal similarities with anything else that they're referencing whatsoever. That's true. You know, it's for grownups. That movie is for grownups. It's not for teenagers. Under the skin is a really incredibly disturbing movie. And and even though it's always recommended that way and that's sort of the nature of its buzz, it's still disturbing when you watch it. The notion of subjecting myself voluntarily to the beach scene again, having seen it the first time, like I, I I don't know if, I can't remember ever having a reaction to a scene in a movie like that. I was screaming at my screen. Okay. Just like and waving my hands and saying, no, no. <laughs> I, two, it was so visceral. It was. And the two moments that it reminded me of immediately are two of the most terrifying, and they're not from The Exorcist, strangely. Two of the most terrifying images I saw because I was little when I saw them. One was in the Twilight Zone movie with John Lithgow. Um, in the Twilight Zone movie, and I saw this at a kid's house. I've told the story before. I saw it at his house because his parents were divorced. It was a terrible divorce. His mother wouldn't be home from work until whatever hour. And he would just get dropped off alone. And we were nine. That's way too young to get dropped off alone. Yeah. But I, I didn't tell my parents that because I got to go to his house and watch the movies his mom had rented, which included Cujo, which wasn't a great movie to see at nine. No. Uh, and, and some other really messed up stuff. But among them was the Twilight Zone movie, which is a terrible, stupid, awkward, weird movie. There's a scene in that movie where there's a kid who gets his every wish. He gets his way. And he wishes yeah. that his sister would shut up. And they show a picture of his sister, like in this terrifyingly blue lit, I think it's a television screen light, and she has no mouth. And the makeup has been put over her face, so she has no mouth. And she has these huge bug eyes with black makeup around her eyes. 
That scared me at a primal level. It goes past emotion. There's something chemically in the human brain that the right image, the right construction, the right facial expressions, when you see it, you're just like, that's unholy. It's yeah. super. It's supernaturally unholy. I was astonished by how disturbed I was by that film. When they rescue the kid, they play When It's Cold, I'd Like to Die by Moby. Yep. And to me, I will never not associate, even though I'd heard it before, I had I will never not associate that song with the Kevin Finnerty episodes of The Sopranos when he gets shot by Uncle Junior. Yep. And he's in this limbo universe and he's in this hotel room and you see the light of the airport. I remember watching that and being so moved. You know, one of the handful of times the television has just completely stunned me. You know, like I got hit in the head. Yeah. Uh, and, and and I was so mad that Stranger Things was doing this. And, yeah. you know, obviously the fucking... If you're involved in television, making television for a living, you've watched The Sopranos from start to finish, and you're familiar with this music cue. Now, maybe the audience might not be. The Sopranos using that song is a tribute to Scorsese and the way he used stuff like Sid Vicious's version of My Way and the way that, you know, Quentin Tarantino did all this crate digging and, you know, these are guys who, who believed in the power of music yeah. to, com to complement a film, but then also to completely invert the predicted, predictable, emotional character of a scene. And the scene you're talking about with When It's Cold, I'd Like to Die is a signature example of a piece of art that has multiple media in it, a multimedia art form. That's probably what I should have said. That's usually the <laughs> contract. That's usually the contraction you use when your fucking brain works and you have been watching kids all week. So you have a multimedia art form. They value and they invest in every aspect, every component of the multimedia experience. And when they do that, and they do it well, and it's just like I was saying with the SLC punk thing. When you do it right, you get transported by those moments to wherever right. that place is. And you have the opportunity to do that. But it just seems like all these shows now are trying to fucking set them up all the time. And you can't do it. You got to yeah. make the show first. You got to make me care about these characters. You got to make me believe in their circumstances. You got to make me believe in the dramas of their lives and of the, the world that you're presenting in this show. If you want to hit me with fucking hurt by nine inch nails, you got a lot of work to right. do, you know? And I just, there's such a pervasive laziness and stranger things is the epitomization of how not to do this and something that has to stop because yeah. if people keep playing DJ on their fucking TV shows, go fucking DJ in a club. I don't, I don't need to have the visual aesthetics of the 1980s VHS world you know, presented to me with some, you know, barely there thread of a maybe almost plot it's just so you can anchor it with songs that have emotional resonance for people already outside, right. outside of film. I mean, I, I, I think I'm, I am now, I'm glad that I brought up David Chase and the Sopranos because I think in the main, he was very good at that. Like when I think of Sopranos music cues that mean a lot to me, almost none of them have any uh, uh, most of them i'd never heard before he ended in that there was it wasn't even in the show it was just over the end credits uh blur 
from Selected Ambient Works Volume 2 by Aphex Twin. That was just over the credits. And it was like, what does this mean to anybody? It, it means something to him. It, it creates like an emotional tone or World Destruction by uh, John Lydon, Africa Bombada, or Evidently Chicken Town. Evidently or, Chicken Town. Yeah, you know, um, and, and even like fucking like Waiting on a Call, like a Keith Richards song from a latter-day Rolling Stones record. You know what terrifies me, though? No one's done it yet. Someone, maybe they haven't, I've missed it, and I'm glad I've missed it. Someone out there is going to try and fucking slip something from Talk Talk's Spirit of Eden into one of these shows, <laughs> and Sean, you'll know... Because when you hear that, your your phone is going to ring. It's going to be me, and I'm already going to be mid-sentence in the ambulance on the way to the hospital <laughs> recording recording part two of this of this podcast. All right, thanks, man. I guess Thank to Sean, Sean Collins, Sean T. Collins, excuse me, uh, television writer extraordinaire. You can read him. You don't have a choice. You're going to read him wherever you go. He's at Rolling Stone. He is everywhere. Rubber.